morning and a warm welcome to the HelloFresh SE Q2 2023 results. At this time, all participants have been placed on a listen-only mode. The floor will be open for questions following the presentation. Let me now turn the floor over to your host, Dominic Richter. Hi, good morning. Welcome all to our Q2 2023 earnings presentation. Today we'd like to confirm the numbers that we've already pre-released a couple of weeks ago and use the opportunity to shed some additional light on how Q2 turned out for us, but also how we see ourselves performing against our long-term ambitions. Our mission is to change the way people eat forever. And home cooking has obviously been over hundreds of years and will most likely continue to be the most popular way to eat dinner for the next 100 years. More than 50% of dinners in our target markets are cooked and consumed at home, a figure that's also incredibly sticky throughout economic cycles and all ways of life. In the almost 12 years since HelloFresh was started, we grew HelloFresh to a meals run rate of over 1 billion meals per year, which is on the one hand an incredible achievement, on the other hand, this also just constitutes a little over 1% of all dinners that our prime target group consumes. We've more recently disrupted another food category successfully and grown into the largest direct-to-consumer ready-to-eat player in the U.S. The plans to also bring that um, to Europe and other places around the world. Changing the way people eat forever, not only for people cooking at home, but also for those being a little bit shorter on time. These two scaled verticals and the number of newer verticals in which are in the early stages get us a meaningful step closer to our vision to grow into the world's leading food solutions group. And while we have achieved some amazing wins and despite being the biggest disruptors in these two huge consumer categories of home cooking and ready to eat in the last decade, we still feel very early in our trajectory and are excited about the days ahead of us. And while it's always nicer to have everything go smoothly up and to the right in an extremely consistent fashion, the reality is that uh, it's usually a little bit more messy and we continue be, to be faced with many things that we cannot control. Whether that's a pandemic, which in hindsight was a big accelerator, to um, our market penetration, an inflationary shock or warmongering, just to name a few. Others, such as capacity constraints, are to a certain degree in our own control, but we cannot always time them without any impact to our growth journey or actually in line with a financial quarter, making the numbers sometimes seem a little bit more volatile than they are if you assume where they should be headed in the mid and long term. In the long term, these are all completely negligible things if you think about the size of the opportunity that we go after. But in the short term, they often cause us a lot of hard work and, uh, and long nights. What we have done in all these phases is to really focus on the long term and work backwards to actually understand what the best strategy is to deal with the shorter term opportunities and challenges of today. And so for the first half of 2023, for us, this really meant shifting our focus to exercising strong cost discipline across the board and improving our underlying unit economics significantly, 
but also making our customer experience better. This puts us now in a position to take the next step in our growth journey with a more profitable model and a lot more modes against current and potential future competitors. After the massive scale-up over the last three years, when we more than tripled the business, these past six months have certainly felt a little bit more like a transition period, but it has been healthy and made us the strongest version of HelloFresh that we've been. In terms of talent, technology, but also our unit economics, I think we'll pave the way for strong, profitable growth and predictable, sustainable free cash flow generation. In the end, it's quite simple. As a company, we strive to maximize the long-term free cash flow per share for our shareholders by building the customer base, technology, talent, and brand to become a category-defining company in our own right. With the many modes and the strong market share gains that we have achieved, we are on a clear path to build a lasting winner in one of the largest consumer categories and also on track for very material free cash flow generation. With these opening remarks in mind, I'd like to walk you through some of the highlights specifically of Q2, bearing in mind the overall H1 development. First of all, we've grown constant currency by about 1% over year as a decrease in active customers is more than offset by an increase in AOV of 8% and continued strong average order rates close to record levels of 4.1 of orders per customer per quarter. We've seen very strong operational efficiencies on both procurement and fulfillment expenses, which drove a very substantial contribution margin uplift by about three points to 28.4% contribution margin. That is re very um, reminiscent of some of the contribution margin that we've actually seen pre-COVID or in the early days of COVID. We've had a very disciplined spend approach against a relatively soft consumer environment, which translates into broadly flat relative marketing expenses, and which also gives us some additional discretionary growth budget for the second half of the year. Most notably, we achieved our highest ever quarterly adjusted EBITDA of 192 million. That's a margin of about 10%. Importantly, we also generated very significant um, free cash flow again. Our free cash flow from operation is among the highest it has been in Q2. And so also Q2 and Q1 combined made us to achieve not only record operational um, free cash flow, but also return to generating free cash flow after the investments that we've taken in fulfillment centers and the build out of our infrastructure. We've narrowed our top line guidance to two to 8% of constant currency growth, and we've upped the range of adjusted EBITDA we expect to land in to 470 to 540 million, taking into account the additional discretionary growth budget that we've taken aside for H2. Why do we think or why are we positive for the development in H2? Number one, because we've worked hard on actually improving our unit economics and can go for very profitable growth in the second half of the year. 
our factor production capacity will be the bottleneck. The comparative period benchmarks become and a number of product enhancements such as the increase from 35 to 45 meals on the menu in the U.S. market will start to hit. This, in combination with our better contribution margin, will guide us the way to continued profitable growth and then also free cash flow generation. In addition to improving our unit economics in the short run, we also continued to invest in new business verticals, such as pet food for our Factor Europe launch and a number of capabilities in the first half of the year to drive mid to long-term growth, profitability, and ultimately free cash flow per share. For the last six years, we've been investing into establishing artificial intelligence and machine learning as key components of our technology platforms with many use cases live and providing real monetary benefit. Right now, we have a group of about 70 data scientists and machine learning engineers who work exclusively on training, refining, and deploying around 1,500 models per week across a multitude of different use cases all along the HelloFresh value chain. Most of our models are powered by the unique and proprietary datasets that we've accumulated over the last few years, such as customer order patterns, meal preferences, menu browsing behavior, and other rich customer preference training sets. Examples of AI and L-driven applications that are used daily in our operations include, for example, menu creation algorithms, near-real-term customer lifetime modeling, incentive individualization, customer service automation, or the load balancing of picks along our picking lines in near real term. While most of these scaled use cases rest on predictive AI, we also continue to be excited about our forays into generative AI as well. For both types, the value of our own proprietary data sets is immense. For both types, the infrastructure demands to structure your own data, to store your data, compute, to make it consumable for the different application cases, for very similar principles that we have gained strong experience in over the past six years. Outside of the AIML use cases that we already have live today and that I just shared, we see lots of opportunity across all PL line items to benefit from the advances of AI and specifically Gen AI. Over the last six months, we've started experimenting with some use cases and become increasingly excited for their midterm potential. I don't want to read out each and every one here, but if you focus on some of the ones that we have in green here, those are ones that we're experimenting live with today already. And so if I pick out one example from each of the GNA line items, for example, on the revenue side, we've seen good initial results to better leverage um, AI to understand fraudulent customer behavior and better crack down on it, um, actually identify that earlier and be more efficient in turning these customers away. In procurement and fulfillment, we've started to leverage computer vision to enhance the quality of our picking processes 
and we aim to introduce more widely for quality control purposes around our fulfillment centers around the world. In marketing, for example, um, we've seen tremendous opportunities for creative asset generation, such as simple copywriting, image generation, or video generation, something that is done at the moment by many, many um, talented people inside of HelloFresh at agencies today at varying quality levels and where generative AI can play a big role in the midterm. It's also, um, I think, a, a really interesting use case to leverage real-time weather data and forecasts to dynamically adjust and configure our packaging solutions, which allow us to reduce packaging, which benefits the environment and helps us save on cost, plus provides a better user experience to customer. And then finally, with regards to employee productivity and G&A, I think especially with regard to our engineering population, we're establishing code assistance tooling to make the coding process less error-prone, of higher quality, and achieve higher productivity in the process. So ultimately, in the mid to long term, a lot of these opportunities will eventually materialize and make us a better, more efficient business. It's hard to say what timeline we're exactly looking at to bring many of these opportunities into production, so into their daily usage, versus simple test cases where we've already seen good results. But given our experiences, given our talent and the investments that we've done over the last six years into structuring, cataloging, and storing our own proprietary data sets, we feel pretty well equipped to leverage the opportunities that are provided by this new technology. Let me return um, quickly to um, some of the numbers from the second quarter. So first, starting with meals, we delivered around uh, 254 million meals in the second um, quarter of uh, 2023. So after the unparalleled growth over the last three years, that's actually been the first year where we've been down in meals, about 6% versus last year, as we've rolled off the final pandemic comparable quarter, but we remain well on track to deliver more than 1 billion meals to our customers in 2023. While existing customers continued to show strong stickiness and actually ordered, on average, more meals per order than ever before, we pulled back on some of our marketing investments given a softer consumer environment, elevated travel levels, and anticipated improvements of our unit e economics into the second half of the year. We plan to shift a part of these budgets to H2, and we will have the bottleneck factor U.S. capacity and can drive more profitable growth as a result. In terms of average order rate, we increased that by yet another 2% year over year to 4.1 orders per quarter per customer. That's a near record level for HelloFresh in the second quarter and more than 14% higher than the last pre-pandemic level that we had. Major drivers for this improvement are the enhancement of our product and recipe quality, better service levels, and a significant strengthening of the relative affordability against grocery and food delivery, which have been exposing their customers to a lot more inflation than we have in the process gaining relative affordability. 
With that, I'd like to come to the average order value we have observed during the second quarter. AOV has been trending 8.4% higher than last year and has reached 63.6 euro per order. This was the single biggest driver to our year-over-year positive net revenue growth. And if you look at our two segments, AOV increased actually 9.7% year-over-year in North America and about 6.5% in our international markets. Three factors contributed to that growth in average order value. Number one, a higher contribution of RTE, specifically impacting the North America number, price increases, and then very importantly, also um, bigger baskets by our customers on the one hand side with a um, larger menu. They've taken on more meals um, per order on average and with the rollout of HelloFresh Market into the UK, into France and into Germany, um, we've also had a lot more customers exposed to our HelloFresh market, and that contributes positively to increasing AOVs. The last two should really continue to be growth contributors going forward as we roll out HelloFresh market and scale RTE. Even as inflation is rolling off, this will contribute to better AOVs going forward. Now taken together, a reduction in the number of meals sent, but higher average order values led to a constant currency revenue growth of about 1% for Q2 to 1.92 billion euros. Please note that uh, the euro lost against most other currencies, so euro-denominated figures are slightly down, whereas in constant currency, they're actually up. Q2 should have been the low point for growth, with reacceleration of customers and number of meals expected for H2. Outside of easier comms, we see the scaling potential of Factor US into H2 as very significant, and we see a number of product enhancements hitting in the second half of the year, such as the expansion from 35 to 45 meals on our US menu, as well as the rollout of HelloFresh market into more and more geographies. Overall, much improved unit economics and an improved customer experience should make our growth in H2 more profitable, which is why we have shifted some of our budgets into these periods. With that, as always, I hand over to Christian to walk you through our cost line items and our free cash flow generation. Thanks, Dominic. Um, I would like to start with the development of our procurement expenses. Despite an overall still inflationary ingredient pricing environment, we achieved a year-on-year margin improvement of 0.6 percentage points by lowering our procurement expenses to 33.8%. Structurally, as you've seen consistently from us in the past, our AI-driven menu planning helps us to achieve consistently high customer satisfaction scores and recipe ratings while also hitting consistently our margin targets. Now in Q2 specifically from a geographic perspective, our US market brands contributed meaningfully to this margin expansion as well as certain key international markets such as Germany and the UK. 
Looking into the second half, you should expect a modest year-on-year increase of our relative procurement expenses as we, number one, ramp up our new factor ready-to-eat production facility in Arizona, and secondly, have a strong pipeline of new products and experiments coming through, as Dominic had alluded to. Okay, next, I would like to discuss the development of our fulfillment expenses. Similar to Q1, we have very meaningfully decreased our fulfillment expenses year-on-year by 2.3 percentage points. This is a continuation of the strong improvement that we've seen from us very consistently since mid-last year. Especially our North America segment continues to contribute significantly to this positive trend. As we had discussed in detail at our capital markets day at the beginning of the year, we are meaningfully reducing our relative fulfillment expenses by number one, optimizing our fulfillment center footprint, secondly, by driving process standard standardization, and thirdly, by ramping up the use of technology and automation. Besides these like-for-like ongoing improvements, a higher share of ready-to-eat and a higher overall average order value also help to deliver lower relative fulfillment expenses. Now, the combination of both, a relative improvement on procurement expenses and a meaningful increase in fulfillment efficiencies, means we've expanded our contribution margin by almost three percentage points to 28.4%. Now, this is the fourth quarter in a row that we consistently deliver meaningful contribution margin expansion. Both of our operating segments contribute well to this positive trend. Especially our North America segment achieved a contribution margin of 31% in the quarter. We had promised at our capital markets day that we would expand our contribution margin for the full year this year by at least 100 basis points. So far, we've delivered meaningfully north of that in each of the first two quarters and also expect for the second half to at least be 100 basis points above last year's level. Now, I would like to discuss the development of our marketing expenses in Q2. We have spent somewhat less on marketing in Q2 than originally planned, based on the factors that um, Dominic had out. This meant that both absolute and relative market expenses in Q2 2023 were largely on par with the same period last year. In a reasonably soft consumer environment, we decided based on our AI-driven proprietary marketing tools to stay disciplined in the way we're deploying our capital and rather deferred some budget to the back-to-school period in autumn. This period will then also coincide with the ramp-up of our new factor facility in Goody, Arizona, which will go live towards the end of Q3. Now, when we put all of this together, this means we have achieved the highest ever quarterly EBITDA in Q2. We achieved an EBITDA of 190 million, higher than during any peak COVID period. We achieved this through strong contribution margin expansion, disciplined marketing spend, and very healthy retention and ordering behavior from existing customers. As a result, we delivered an EBITDA margin of 10%. In that sense, our Q2 profitability is already a template 
of how we see our 2025 full-year margin target. A contribution margin of around 29%, marketing at circa 16% of revenue and EBITDA margin of circa 10%, so all in line with what we had discussed at our capital markets day a couple of months ago. Our strong Q2 EBITDA margin performance also means that we are up for the full year, for the full H1 versus the same period last year. This hopefully also provides some comfort to those of you who feared at the beginning of the year that our EBITDA performance would be too backend weighted and therefore would put our guidance at risk. Before we come to this, I would like to also discuss the development of our free cash flows in Q2 and this in the first half. In our capital markets data beginning of the year, we promised to get back to at least free cash flow break even this year after a quite extensive multi-year CapEx program. In H1, we've increased our cash flow from operating activities to 207 million euros versus CapEx of 169 million euros. This means we already in H1 delivered a positive free cash flow of 38 million euros. Dominic had mentioned earlier today already, the long-term growth of our free cash flow per diluted share is from our perspective one of the most important drivers of value creation for our shareholders. Therefore, we will continue to be focused to drive the nominator of this ratio, i.e. free cash flow growth over longer periods of time, but also continue to be disciplined to avoid the growth of the denominator. We've also started to report free cash flow per diluted share as a key KPI. Some of you will have noticed that this morning already at the front of our quarterly report. We report this in addition to reporting our absolute free cash flow so that you can easily track our progress on this metric. Our strong business profile and our financial position has also been recognized through the investment grade triple B minus rating which we recently received from S&P. This is a good illustration of our robustness and puts us several notches ahead of most other international e-commerce companies. Let me now conclude with our narrowed outlook for the full year 2023, which is effectively repeating what we had published earlier on July 19 already. We've narrowed constant currency revenue growth from previously 2 to 10% to now 2 to 8%. Illustratively, this would relate at the midpoint of this range, i.e. at a 5% constant currency growth rate in a full year revenue of circa 7.7 .7 billion euros, assuming FX rates as of mid-July, the time when we narrowed this guidance, which would mainly include a US dollar to euro rate of around about 110, so roughly where it is still today. Versus H1, we expect expecting a year-on-year re-acceleration of revenue growth from autumn onwards, as our factor US is not any more capacity constraints from MQ3 onwards, and COVID comparables will have largely washed out by Q3, Q4, 2023. From an EBITDA perspective, given the strong Q2 performance, we have lifted the lower end of our previous range and therefore currently expect 470 to 540 million of EBITDA for the full year. 
proxy three just keep our normal seasonality in mind, i.e. summer contribution margin due to less fixed cost utilization during the summer holiday period and increased packaging and cooling material costs due to peak temperatures in most of our markets. Then secondly, seasonally higher marketing spend in the back-to-school period, where we, in, in addition, have carried over some extra budget from Q2 to take advantage of attractive opportunities when they arise, as discussed earlier. With that, we look forward to your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question now, please press 9 followed by the star key on your telephone keypad only once. If you wish to cancel that question, please press 9 followed by the star key a second time. And the first question comes from Luke Holbrook, Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone. Um, just a question, really, on if you can share more color on, on actives falling in North America. Um, is this, do you think, due to increased competition? Is there a certain demographic that's turning? Just any more color there would be very helpful. Thank you. Look, it's, um, it's, it's questionnaire. So um, on, the, um, on the first sub-point, uh, so no, it's not increased competition um, when you look at Whichever um, third-party data you have access to, or market share um, database and credit cards, for example, you will see that um, we continuously increase our market share um, uh, across our Milkit brands in the um, in the U.S. and certainly also um, on the on the ready-to-eat side. And this applies to both the second quarter, but frankly, in, uh, any period you want to look at over the last five years in that um, in that market. Um, in terms of the year-on-year -year development, this is driven by two things. One, uh, reasonably soft consumer environment um, in North America that you probably have heard from some other companies um, <clears throat> in, that, um, in that period as well. And the fact that we effectively since the first half of uh, Q1 are at max capacity in our ready-to-eat business. Um, now, the latter, as discussed, will be addressed as of the um, end of Q3. Um, so we de-bottleneck capacity constraints there. And on the first one, we have good hope it's um, going to clear up over time as well. Okay, understood. And just on the capacity in North America, if your orders are down, I guess, 8% uh, is there a way that you can optimize warehouse capacity even further or change some of the distribution footprint going forward? Yeah, that's an, that's an ongoing process, but um, overall we feel quite good um, with the steps that we've uh, we've taken. Do you see that um, shining through in our contribution margin, um, uh, obviously, as well? Uh, so um, a rationalization of our um, um, fulfillment center footprint and optimizing that is certainly one of the factors that helps to um, to expand contribution margin. Thank you. The next question comes from Andrew Gwynn, BNP Paribas Exane. Please go ahead. Hi there, good morning. Yes, apologies to go very short term, but Q3 trading um, or sort of guidance would be very useful. Um, presume there's significant seasonality, even more pronounced than last year. So appreciate an, an improvement from September onwards, but as we say in July and August, presumably trends are, are pretty subdued. 
Yeah, so obviously reasonably early in that quarter, um, and uh, keep in mind we're still at, um, I would say, in the back half of um, of peak holiday season for us. So um, there's not a lot we can tell you about Q3 trading, um, other than that it's fully in line with um, with our plan on the basis of which we've given our guidance. Uh, Dominic said earlier that you expected growth for trough, so year-on-year growth for trough in Q2. So Q3 presumably expected to be better and then much better in Q4. Is that the right sort of shape? That's uh, that's both the right shape. So um, uh, uh, sequentially, um, a modest move up in Q3 and then more pronounced in, in Q4, correct? Yeah, perfect. Thank you very much. The next question comes from Joseph Barnett Lamb, Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Excellent. Thank you, team. Um, when you talk about shifting budgets into 2H, it will be more profitable. I imagine you mean from a sort of CAC versus LTV perspective. Uh, in the remarks, you sort of gave some reasons to believe that LTV would be better. But could we talk a little bit about CAC? I think CAC was sort of rising through last year, and then you thought, I think you said at 1Q that it had been sort of flat from 4Q into, into 1Q. Um, has CAC remained flat in Q2, or have you seen a bit of a, a movement upwards? Uh, and what are your thoughts on CAC into, into 2H? Thank you. Yeah, sure. What we did see is um, as the pandemic ended, um, sort of like in late 21, 22, um, or early 20, early two, we saw some sort of like increased, slightly increased customer acquisition costs, but it's really been broadly flat to uh, to slightly down since. So we haven't seen sort of like additional inflation in customer acquisition costs. And as we outlined during the Capital Markets Day, at the same time, we've actually grown our LTV more. So our LTV to CAC these days is at the same or better levels um, for most of the markets that we operate in. There are always some regional differences, um, but high level and company-wide, sort of like we have increased LTVs, more than CAC has increased since the pandemic ended. Thanks, Dominic. So there wasn't a sort of movement up in CAC in Q2, which is sort of one of the, the drivers for you pushing the spending into H2? In Q2 22, there was a move up, and ever since, he's kept it broadly stable. Used Q2 23 this year to really work on our contribution margin, to work on our product enhancements, to make sure that we get the capacity de-bottleneck and factor so that we can drive profitable growth um, now on the back-to-school season and all the way through Q4. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, no, I meant Q2 23 versus Q1 23. There have been no incremental increase, and it sounds like you're saying there has not been an increase. So thank you. That's correct. The next question comes from Emily Johnson, Barclays. Good morning. Um, can you please walk us through what your expectations are for the market and as well your kind of meal kits versus ready-to-eat mix? to get to the bottom and the top end of your revenue growth guidance. So, for example, if factor grows as planned in H2, what would need to happen to the rest of the business for you to only achieve the 2% revenue growth given easing comps? Um, and a follow-on from that, in terms of factor growth in the second half, what gives you confidence in 
not just when the capacity comes through, but I guess the consumer um, kind of subscribing to it, given the weakness you see in Q2. And, and to what extent do you think you benefited in the second half last year, in the first half this year, from the closure of Freshly? Thanks. Um, <clears throat> if um, if I can um, um, answer that, so on the on the first one, as you know, we uh, we're not giving um, uh, granular guidance on a per brand basis. Um, if we change that, I'll definitely make sure um, um, you will know. But um, but we're not um, not not giving that um, qualitatively. What makes us confident that we can further step up growth at factor once we've got the um, the production capacity is really the um, latent demand that we um, we are seeing. Uh, so right now we have to be reasonably our marketing teams have to be reasonably constrained uh, in terms of um, um, the campaigns that they run not to generate more demand than what we can um, serve, and that's um, the ongoing fight on a week by week basis. So to um, to pair back there, so we think we're quite confident uh, that once. Um, um, capacity is the bottleneck that um, there will be quite healthy in, um, the, in demand for that. So the next question comes from Nisa Nisla Neze. I'm sorry, Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead. Your line is open. That's okay. Hi. Uh, just two questions from my end. Firstly, um, you mentioned that there was some marketing from Q2 now being pushed back to sort of Q3 to Q4. Just on the back of that, how should we think of the customer base evolving in Q3? Could it be sort of a typical seasonality quarter where there could be sequential declines, or could it even be flat with the incremental marketing that you're now spending um, after the declines we saw in Q2? So some color there would be great on maybe how the base case of, your, of the customer base evolution. Um, and my second question is on your 2025 outlook. Um, to get to the 10 billion of revenue, you would now need sort of double-digit growth from 2024 to 2025. How confident are you that growth could accelerate from these levels? And if factor is the reason, we'd love to get some color on, on, on the scale of that growth that you anticipate um, to get to those targets. Thank you. Um, on the um, on the first point on on um, on customer growth, so if you assume for um, um, for Q3 broadly stable customers, but <clears throat> again there's some um, um, some variants, uh, some potential variants left um, left to right from that, especially given when you think about Q3 where let's um, say customer acquisition is somewhat back end loaded and. Um, we're only going to embark on back to school in most of our um, key geographies in September onwards. So even people we bring on board then may not have received a first delivery um, still in that quarter and therefore would not count as an active customer. So there is some variance in that, but uh, sequentially versus the 7.3 um, in Q2, um, if you assume broadly stable with um, a little bit for variance left or, left or right. Um, on your um, second question, so um, uh, confidence on our midterm growth to sit north of uh, north of 10%, um, we remain confident that the drivers really are unchanged from what we discussed in detail at our capital markets day at the beginning of the year. Thanks. Next question comes from Nick Coulter. 
City. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Nick Horst from City. Um, I have three quick ones, if I may, uh, please. Firstly, for the, the NAM segment, could you update on the underlying level of pricing going through, like under the underlying price per mill increase year over year? I guess by default, uh, that will kind of give us the impact of RTE marketplace uh, and surcharges. Um, secondly, could you update on the customer number overlap between Factor uh, and the other brands uh, in the NAM segment, please? Uh, I know it's a small percentage, but it would be helpful uh, to have an update, please. And then thirdly, uh, just to clarify, I think, Christian, you mentioned a modest move up uh, for the third quarter. Which um, income segment line were you referring to uh, with that, please? Thank you. Um, on um, on the impact of um, of pricing, so the um, price per year of the um, eight and a half percent AOV increase that you've seen from us um, year on year, roughly five to six percent are both of that combined, so price and and mix combined, um, and then. Um, two two and a half percent um, is basically a further expansion of um, uh, the take up in surcharge as well as um, um, basically hello hello fresh market. And I'm sorry, uh, there was some noise. Do you mind to remind us of um, of your second and third question? Yeah, sure. Um, it was just on the, the customer number overlap between Factor and the other brands in in NAM. Um, I think you've given it previously as, as being a small percentage, but just to kind of get a sense of how that's that's trending. Yeah, for the um, for Factor and um, North America, I couldn't tell you here um, um, uh, uh, from the um, here spontaneously what we've. Um, also shown in the um, in the report is basically that for the group of us, so if you take all brands together, that overlap is somewhere around 150-ish yeah, for 150k customers. So um, by deduction in the US, it's even smaller. So the, um, the bottom line is it's it's de minimis, frankly. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then. On the, the modest move up for, for the third quarter that you mentioned earlier, which income statement line does that refer to, or which statistic does that refer to, please? Uh, so that was on on our procurement expenses, year-on-year um, 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 year procurement expenses as percentage of um, of um, of revenue. Given that basically we will start in the second half to um, uh, so from end September onwards to um, use that uh, new factor ca- uh, capacity and as you know um, factor comes with a somewhat higher um, with somewhat higher procurement expenses and then there are um, a number of uh, quite exciting product enhancements and experiments that we um, um, want to through basically um, in the second half and that has a certain impact as well so the combination of both means year on year modest procurement Expense on a relative basis um, uh, expansion in the in the second half. Having said that, contribution margin overall, um, we are still targeting to increase also in the second half by north of 100 pips. So expanding margin despite of that also in both Q3 and Q4. I, I, I think that's helpful. I was, I was referring. I think Dominic mentioned an inflection or. or um, Great bottoming in uh, 
the second quarter. Uh, I think Andrew asked you a question on on clarifying that, and you said there would be a modest move up for the third quarter with respect to growth. And so I was trying to understand. understand I think it's, it's, it's obviously some sort of sales uh, sales line. Um, I see. So, sorry. Um, yes. Um, so um, a modest sequential step up in um, in, in 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 revenue growth. Uh, so versus the around about one percent year on year growth that you've seen from us in the second quarter, a more pronounced step up in Q4. Thank you. That's helpful. The next question comes from William Woods Bernstein. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking the question. Just on active customers, in terms of the kind of 9% drop, are you able to break, give us a rough breakdown between losing existing customers and the newer customers or, or any kind of guidance there? And how does that impact your AOV? Are you seeing the mix of customer types to help your AOV? Thank you. It will, it's, it, um, it's questionnaire. So um, as you know from the shape of our retention pattern, typically we see very little um, uh, uh, churn basically from um, customers the more the longer they're with, um, um, with our service. So um, therefore any um, reduction customers would then more be weighted towards um, more recently acquired customers. Got you thinking. Does that, I suppose, that helps your AOV, right? Because you shift to a full price paying uh, existing customer versus a newer, maybe discounted customer. Is that a factor in the AOV move? This uh, this is overall beneficiary to average order value as well, correct? Thank you. The next question comes from Muskan Kiria Goldman Sachs. Go ahead, your line is open. Okay, so I'd like to repeat. Um, the next question here would be Muska. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, right now. Hi, sorry, I was on mute, sorry. So it's actually so young from, from, from Goldberg. Um, I think the, the first question I have is uh, just in, in terms of how you um, think about marketing versus customer uh, acquisitions. Clearly, in the second quarter, uh, you initially got to 7.7 million, uh, and you added up a, a bit lower than that. And, and historically, you've been quite good at predicting uh, the number of um, new customer additions based on the, the marketing spend um, that you were planning. So, just wondering, has anything changed uh, in terms of the visibility? And, and I'm just wondering, like, what basically happened um, for, for you not to be able to achieve your the, the, the guidance that you initially gave? Um, and obviously, I think that's important given, obviously, that will give us maybe more, also more confidence in terms of the second half and the longer-term guide. Um, that's the first question. Um, and secondly, it's just on uh, the cash allocation. You obviously have uh, 340 million of net cash. So just wondering, I mean, obviously, we know share price is attractive uh, in terms of how you think about the buyback and the potential timing of that. Thank you. Yeah, super. It's uh, it's question. So um, to your first question, I would really um, repeat what um, what Dominic had mentioned earlier. Um, we decided that in a reasonably um, soft consumer environment, um, it was would be more beneficial for us to um, um, defer some of that spend into the back to school period in in autumn, rather than 
spend relatively aggressively ahead of um, um, uh, or into the, the the summer period. That's really that was the driver of the near term active um, active customer development. And then um, on your second point, um, that's noted. Yeah, so in case we we take a decision um, on capital allocation, um, for example, to um, to something like a share buyback, we uh, we would communicate that at, at that point in time. Okay, thank you. Then the last question comes from Sebastian Poleta Jeffries. Please go ahead. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for, for, for the presentation. Um, may I please ask, what makes you confident that after the Arizona facility gets launched at the end of Q3, that demand is there? Uh, can it be the case that you launch it and, and growth for TERP 75 is, is not accelerating? Um, what are you seeing that give you confidence that demand is there? Please, maybe you're canceling some orders, or you cannot fulfill some orders. You, you tell me, please. What makes us long-term confident that in RTE, but as well in new kits, um, we're very early days in the growth trajectory, is the incredibly low penetration number that we have today. So obviously, um, if I talk about new kits here first. When you triple a business in three years, um, it's very, very hard to just continue kind of like growing um, each each and every year and each and every quarter. We will be growing each and every year. We will be returning to double-digit growth in the near future. The timing of some of that uh, growth is not always entirely in our control. That's for the Mirkit business. For Factor specifically, we're at even lower penetration than we are in the Mirkit business. And if you just look at the category that has been established in the U.S., that's about 12 to 15 billion of ready meals actually sent in retail. We do believe that our product is much, much higher quality what you can find there. So we're at very low penetration levels at the moment. And even if we double from the current run rate, we're still at very low penetration levels. What we did see since the beginning of the year is that even running at sort of like half of the marketing budget that we actually wanted to ideally run on, we had to pull back in a lot of weeks and actually use some of the COVID um, um, playbook that we have developed in switching off certain channels, in um, introducing like a third shift, in onboarding three PLs to basically manage some of that demand. So there's a lot of anecdotes um, around here that make us quite confident that we will be able to capture significant demand. But once again, I think the long-term opportunity is incredibly intact. There's very few other categories which, in a short span of a decade, have actually scaled to around $8 billion in revenue run rate, shipping a billion in meals, and that not every single quarter is um, always up and to the right as we manage through multiple, multiple crises at the same time. I think that's pretty clear. But midterm, I think there's no way around that this business will be a lot bigger in two years and three years and in 10 years than what it is today. Thank you very much, Dominic. And if I may ask a second question, please. Are there any countries in which customers started to sign up to HelloFresh due to the affordability factor? Uh, the reason why I'm asking this is because in the group's history, there were a few times when HelloFresh decreased prices and, and growth has meaningfully accelerated. Um, so, were there any countries in which the, the specific factor why people signed up was because it was becoming more affordable? Thank you. 
So I'm not sure if I 100% understood your question. Um, if it is around uh, pricing, then I think generally like our philosophy is that we want to increase prices less than overall inflation and strengthen our relative affordability against grocery and food delivery. We think we can do that because we have more levers to mitigate price increases that we see in the market than those companies have because we're fully vertically integrated. That's why both in terms of in, in, in times of inflation, also in terms of um, more um, minor inflation, we should always be able to strengthen our relative affordability as we gain scale and as we move through the powerful flywheel of uh, giving back sort of like excess um, margin to consumers to enlarge our overall target market. Thank you for that. I was asking more if customers became aware or if they are aware that you guys are uh, more affordable than you were two years ago, for example, uh, from, from, from that perspective. So from some of the surveys that we actually take, we have seen that there is a modest increase in customers who feel that HelloFresh um, is actually like um, a great affordable alternative. Um, I think the numbers um, are some, some of those numbers that we poll on a quarterly basis, customers all around the world. So at least we have seen that despite the fact that we've increased prices on an absolute level, we have not seen that customers actually think we're more expensive than grocery or more expensive than food delivery. The relative affordability, I think we have proof points that customers understand that they continue to find better and better um, deals at HelloFresh. Thank you, Dominic. That was it. Cheers. So there are no further questions at this point. This concludes the Q&A session. Thank you all for participating, and I'd like to hand it back to the speakers for some closing remarks. Thank you for attending our um, Q1 earnings call. I think um, overall I see big focus on some um, small margin movements or active customer numbers here and there. I do think the long-term opportunity is more than intact. You will see us kind of like a re-accelerating growth in Q3 already. And I do think there is many, many growth opportunities and many, many growth vectors where we've already laid the foundations for within the group. Plus, we will be um, maintaining um, sustainable free cash flow generation for the next years to come. So overall, I think um, the risk is here very much skewed to the upward. And um, we're obviously... Are hoping to prove that out over the next quarters to come to take advantage of the massive long-term opportunity that we're going after. Thanks for your um, attention, and I'll speak to you all soon.